Thank you to our music team. Children can be dismissed at this time. Let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. I thought we'd just do a quick flyover of the book of Revelation this morning. I'm glad you understood that was a joke. Revelation chapter 1. I want to look this morning at verses 9 to 20 of Revelation chapter 1. It's the vision that John has of the resurrected Son of Man. We've seen the Son of Man throughout the gospel according to Mark in his earthly ministry as he's said things like the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed. We've seen him in his flesh in the gospels and now we see him in his glorified and exalted state as a resurrected Son of Man. Revelation chapter 1 verses 9 to 20 says this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we approach your word, the holy ground of your word, you would give us help. You would help us to understand what your word teaches us, you would help us to see this glorious vision of the resurrected Son of Man. Not so that we could necessarily wonder what it all means, but that we would be greatly comforted by who he is. We pray, O God, that as 
you sought to both confront and comfort your churches, these seven churches that are named, that you would continue to do that very same thing for us. That this vision of the resurrected Son of Man would give us courage and would be a course correction if, if we ever get off course. If we ever get away from making the gospel that which is of first importance to us. If we ever take up our own agendas instead of living to follow you, Lord Jesus. We confess that we do that all the time and we don't even know it. So we pray that you would help us now by your, by your presence. Confront us and correct us and comfort us. Guide us so that we would live for you. Lord, you've made it crystal clear there is no other way to live. Life is only in you. And you've granted us that life by faith. So we want to live that life. But in order to do that, we need your help. And we need to understand what it is that you want us to see. Lord, we confess it is a struggle sometimes to read things like this and not be able to see it the way that John saw it. Surely it would have, it, it did exactly what your word tells us. It knocked John to his, off of his feet as though he were dead. But when we read this, we, we sit here and we listen to it and we wonder what would, have that, what would that have been like? What would it have looked like? But Lord, as Peter tells us so clearly, we have something even more sure, the prophetic word to which we will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. John had this experience but we have the experience of your word and your indwelling spirit who is our teacher and our helper. So God, we would ask that you would do what only you could do as we approach your word. That you would teach us and you would plant this vision of the resurrected son of man in our hearts so that we would live for him faithfully. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It had been somewhere around 60 years since John had last seen Jesus. Within the span of that 60 years, from some 30, 33 AD to 90 to 95 AD, John had aged but so had the church. The church had endured much persecution and much affliction and much trouble from the world that had crucified the Lord Jesus. By John's day, it looked as though perhaps the church was going to be stamped out by the evil one and by the evil Roman Empire. So what the church needed as it dealt with not only external opposition, but as you know from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, as it dealt with its own sin inside of the church, idolatry, 
sexual immorality, lukewarmness, all things that are not uncommon to the church today. As the church felt opposition from outside and had rebellion against God on its inside, what the church needed was a vision of Jesus. And what Jesus gave to John and then through John to his church then and his church now is a vision of the Son of Man. But not the Son of Man as John knew him to be, not the Son of Man that John walked with and talked with, not the Son of Man whose chest John laid against at the Last Supper, not the Son of Man who was one of John's very best friends in life. Not the son of man who hung on the cross and just before he died told John, behold your mother and told Mary, behold your son. Not that son of man, but the son of man after his death and resurrection and ascension. The son of man who resembles more of the son of man in Daniel 7 and Daniel 10 than the son of man in the gospels. Son of man was one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. It shows up about 81 times in the Gospels. We've seen it multiple times in the Gospel according to Mark. And you heard it read here in the book of Revelation. As we come to the Lord on this Lord's Day, on Resurrection Sunday, I think it will be helpful for us as we've been watching and seeing the Son of Man in his earthly ministry, I think it will be helpful for us to pull back the curtain of heaven and see the Son of Man in his resurrected glory. That's what Jesus knew the churches, many of whom were struggling, needed to see. And that's what Jesus knows the church still needs to see. Because although we don't see him face to face like we will one day, the reality is that Jesus has promised his presence to be with his people forever. Oh, you don't see him today, but he is here. This one, the resurrected Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we walk through this passage then, I think it will be helpful to break it apart in three places. I want us to see three revelations of the Son of Man that leave us in awe of him and motivate us to worship him. Three revelations of the Son of Man that leave us in awe of him and motivate us to worship him. The first comes to us in verses 9 to 11, and it is this, a word to obey John gets a word to obey, the churches get a word to obey, and we still today have a word from Jesus to obey. John begins by presenting his relationship to the audience and telling them, or reminding them rather, about his situation. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. You remember the office that John holds, don't you? An apostle. Yet what does John call himself? A brother and a partner. 
John may not have understood the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach him in the Gospels about what true greatness is. Oh, but he got it later. The Apostle John wants the churches, these seven churches, and wants us to know that what he is most fundamentally is not an apostle, but a Christian. And in being a Christian, he's your brother. And also in being a Christian, he's your partner. Partner in tribulation, which doesn't sound like something that's so appealing about a partnership, right? I mean, who wants to go into partnership with someone who's in intense trouble? Christians do. Because we understand that that partnership is exactly what it is to follow Jesus Christ. It may, by God's grace, be a little bit easier for us to be Christians here, but we know the story for our brothers and sisters all over the world. The fact of the matter is that Christianity has never been about health or wealth or any kind of material prosperity, but Christianity has always been exactly what Jesus says, a call to come and die. So John says to these brothers and sisters, I've taken up my cross and I know you have too and that makes us partners in this tribulation. But not just a partner in a tribulation, a partner in the kingdom. A kingdom which Jesus inaugurated with his presence and a kingdom which he will one day bring to its full completion at his return. But a kingdom which... Paul makes crystal clear in Philippians chapter 3 that you, Christian, are already a citizen of. It doesn't matter the way that the world looks at you or the way that the world identifies you as. It doesn't matter what you have in this life. It matters where you belong to, the kingdom of God. And not not only is he a partner in tribulation and the kingdom, but he's also a partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. This is what the book of Revelation talks about when it speaks of the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. Over and over again, you see that theme in the book of Revelation. Who is it ultimately that gets eternal life? It's the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the one who believes in the gospel and stands in the gospel and does not believe in vain. Christianity is not just something you're dropped into and then you're safe and sound forever and ever as though you could do anything that you want. Christianity is something that you're placed into and you're safe and sound forever and ever if indeed you continue in the faith. In fact, this is exactly why John was on the island of Patmos in the beginning, or in the first place. He was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John wasn't taking a, an all-expenses-paid trip to the island of Patmos, though I'm sure his expenses were covered when the Roman Empire took him over there and booted him out onto this island. He wasn't on vacation. He was suffering for the name of Jesus Christ because he refused to be silent about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so there he was on the island of Patmos, and verse 10 says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Spirit catches John up into this vision and opens his eyes into this this spiritual reality, this spiritual realm where Jesus can be seen for who he is and what he does. And it just so happens to be on the Lord's day, which today we call Sunday. The day that marks the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week, the day that the church has always gathered on Sunday, the Lord's day, to worship the Lord. John describes then what he hears. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then he tells us exactly what the voice says to him. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. I think sometimes as we approach the book of Revelation, we can tend to treat it as though it's only a manual to help us understand the unfolding timeline of God's plan of redemption. But verse 11 makes it crystal clear who the book of Revelation was intended to address in the very first place, churches. And as you continue to read, and we won't go into it, but as you continue to read what the exact letters to these churches says, you understand that some of the churches, a very few, were doing quite well. Most of them were doing pretty poorly. And so as the Lord Jesus unfolds the book of Revelation for the Apostle John and tells him to write it down, He does so because he wants the church in his day to obey his word, to repent of whatever sin they've got in the midst of the church, and to faithfully follow him. We'll just quickly take a a tour through the things that Jesus says to the churches at the end of his letter. Look over at chapter 2, verse 7. There he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jump down to verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jump down to verse 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Down to verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Down to chapter 3, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And finally, chapter 3, verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus gives John a word to obey in writing to these seven churches, and Jesus gives the seven churches a word to obey, and he even tells them if they obey, if they conquer, then he will reward them. By implication, what happens if they do not conquer? To the one who, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, believes in vain. To the one who once says, yes, I believe Jesus, but then you can't find them anywhere in the Christian life. What happens to them? It would be the exact opposite of what happens to the one who conquers. They will be conquered by the wrath of God. Why do I say all of this? I say all of this so that we would know that this word that Jesus gives to John in writing these letters and this word that John through the, uh, through the instruction of Jesus then has delivered to the churches, churches that would be comprised of the most legitimate churches in Asia Minor as they circle around in the postal route, likely churches that would have distributed letters to other churches, John, Jesus wants those churches through John to understand that they too have a word that they must obey. Because as Jesus looks out from his heavenly throne and sees what's going on in these churches, what he sees disturbs him and also delights him. So he wants to comfort those who are faithful and he wants to confront those who are not faithful. Brothers and sisters, is that not the very same thing that we have in this word? A word to obey? Missionaries leave their families and leave their homes and scatter all over the world. Why? Because Jesus said, go and make disciples. And he said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But how will they hear if they don't have a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Missionaries hear the commanding voice of God and they say, I'll go, Lord, send me. Husbands and wives mirror the relationship between the, church, the Lord and his church when Jesus says to them, husbands, love your wives and wives, submit to your husbands as in the Lord. Christians love one another because Jesus has said, this is my commandment that, I love, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
People repent of their sins and believe in the gospel. Why? Not because we're so clever, but because Jesus has said, repent and believe in the gospel. You see, this word still comes from the very mouth of God himself. And so when we proclaim it, all we're doing is joining in to the work of God. And yet to refuse to do any one of those things, to refuse to make disciples, to refuse to love your wife if you're a husband or submit to your husband if you're a wife, to refuse to love other Christians if you're a Christian, to refuse to repent and believe in the gospel is to refuse the authoritative word of the resurrected son of man. It's to look Jesus square in the face and say, no. And so John sees this vision and he hears this command But it's not as though it's only for John. As we hear the resurrected Son of Man, we get a word to obey. So do you. Of course you don't obey perfectly. Of course you you wrestle with your sin and you're still trying to, to fight your disobedience. But do you fight Or do you just settle for law-breaking? Do you use the grace of God in Jesus Christ as an excuse to get away with something? Jesus has paid for it. I mean, it's it's fine. All my sins were nailed to the cross, right? I can can do whatever I want to do. But at the same time, not only is there seeing, using the grace of God as a license to sin, but do you use the law of God as though you somehow could establish your own righteousness? You might be thinking to yourself, I would never view the Bible as something that is, you know, up to me to obey or not. I'm all about obedience to the Bible. Well, friend, you need to be careful that your, your obedience to the Bible doesn't somehow override the good news that you'll never be obedient perfectly, but Jesus has been. And so is your obedience then motivated not by your own self-discipline, not by your own desire to do what God wants you to do, but is your obedience motivated by the reality that in Christ you are justified and in Christ alone? You see, if you see the law of God as burdensome, it's because you don't understand the gospel of God. And a Christian can fall into that trap. When you fall into the rut of thinking, I'm just in a slump. Obedience is just so hard. I mean, I just want to sleep in and just kind of do my own thing. And uh, I'm really in a slump. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not really a Christian or, or at least, you know, maybe if I am a Christian, I'm just kind of a second-rate Christian. Here's the good news. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And it's his righteousness that the Father accepts, not yours. Even as a Christian, your righteousness is still like filthy rags. But it's sanctified in Christ because you're in him. And so we have a word to obey, but the reality is we have a word that we get to obey. 
And this is the first vision that we see. The second, the second revelation of the resurrected Son of Man comes to us in verses 12 to 16. Verses 12 to 16, we see a vision to remember. We've heard a word to obey, now we see a vision to remember. A vision to remember because these churches needed to understand who it was that they were worshiping. Who it was that was not just over them, but with them. And so John begins to describe this scenario. He's heard the voice, verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is the part where it begins to get very poetic. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature, literature that is unique and specific, very similar to prophetic literature, but apocalyptic literature. And so you have this description certainly of what John saw, but what he saw tells us more about who Jesus is. He gets this imagery from Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10, Ezekiel chapter 43, and other places of prophetic text that describe the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days and the angel that was warring the king of or the prince of Persia. But what does it all mean? Well, first of all, notice what John sees before he even points us to the one who's in the center, the one like a son of man, he tells us that he sees seven golden lampstands. You know where the lampstands belong in Judaism, don't you? In the tabernacle and then in the temple. What is John seeing here? He's seeing Jesus in his office as high priest. There were seven, a seven branch, there was a seven branch lampstand in the tabernacle, according to Ezekiel chapter 25. Zechariah in Zechariah 20, uh, verse chapter 4, sees a vision of a lampstand with seven lamps coming off of it. And certainly John is pointing us back to those realities. But what he's doing is showing us that the one who is in the midst of that, that one is now, as Hebrews says, the great high priest. He's the one who keeps the lamps burning. He's going to tell us what the lampstands are. They're the seven churches. And what has Jesus told his church to be? Rather, what has he told the church that they are? The light of the world. Who keeps that light going? Not the churches the Lord of the church. And so he, he's described here as one who is like a son of man, just like Daniel chapter seven says. We've read this multiple times in our study of the gospel according to Mark. Let me read it for you one more time. John, or, or rather Daniel sees the ancient of days who is the father and then Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. What does Jesus say he'll come back on? The clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And now John sees an image of a man that looks just like that, and he knows that even when Jesus was calling himself the Son of Man on earth, and when he was saying things to them like the Son of Man must suffer, and be rejected and die, but on the third day would rise again. And and John and the other disciples looked at him and thought, you don't look like the Son of Man, you look just like us. And now he sees the Son of Man as the high priest of his church. How does that happen? Because in order to get the kingdom and the dominion of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, there had to be a sacrifice for sin. What good's a kingdom if you don't have any subjects in the kingdom? And how do you get sinners to be in the perfection of God? You have to apply the righteousness of God to the sinner's account. But in order to apply the righteousness of God to the sinner's account, the unrighteous sinfulness of man has to be applied to the Son of God on the cross. And that was the great exchange that we talked about on Friday night. And so John sees the Lord Jesus now in his high priestly ministry. And this is what the writer of Hebrews has to say. Hebrews seven twenty three to 25 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, in Israel's history, you had to have a bunch of high priests because they just kept dying on us. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Not only does he intercede as we, his saints, continue to sin, but he intercedes on our behalf through his prayers. Right now, Jesus is praying for you in the hearing of his word and for me in the preaching of his word. Right now. That's not some fairy tale fantasy. That's what the Bible says. Because he's the high priest of his church. This shows that he's with his church, but then... The vision goes on to explain not only is he with his church, but he's over his church, both as their king and their prophet. The king who has ultimate authority, the three offices of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, are all represented here. He's the priest who makes intercession. He's the king who is all commanding and is even compared to the ancient of days himself. And he's the prophet whose voice is like the roar of many waters, whose voice is like a trumpet So loud that when John hears it, he has to turn around. And when he sees the vision of Jesus Christ, he falls down as though he's dead. 
the one who calls himself the apostle whom Jesus loves, sees Jesus and falls down as though he were dying. Because the truth is, the vision of the resurrected Son of Man is terrifying even for his people. And so he goes on to explain what he sees. One like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest like a priest and like the, like the angel in Daniel chapter 10. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. This is a comparison to the ancient of days. Listen to Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. And what are Jesus' eyes said to be here? His eyes were like a flame of fire. Daniel 7 presents to us the ancient of days who is the father. And then Daniel 7 presents to us the the son of man who it comes to the ancient of days and from the ancient of days is given a kingdom and a dominion forever and ever. But then Revelation chapter one reminds us of the reality that Jesus is the exact image of the nature of God. And isn't this what the New Testament makes clear over and over and over again? Isn't this what Jesus said? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. And so when, John, when John's vision of Jesus is comparable to the ancient of days with the white hair and the flaming fire, he wants us to know absolutely Jesus may be called the Son of God, but Jesus is God. His eyes of flaming fire most likely represent the reality that Jesus sees everything. Nothing escapes his view. And if you look at the letters that John wrote on behalf of Jesus to the churches, you'll see that. Nothing escaped Jesus' view. Churches who thought they were wonderful, Jesus says, you're nothing. Churches who thought they were doing all right, Jesus says, you've given yourself over to Balaam. It's important for us to understand, and we'll we'll flesh this out a little bit more as we see what Jesus is holding in his hand. It's important for us to know it wasn't just these seven churches that Jesus knew what was going on in. It's every single church throughout all of time. And guess who's in charge of everything that happens in those churches? Jesus. When there's sin in a church, do you think Jesus turns a blind eye? Can he he close the eyelids of those eyes that are flaming fire? No. He sees and he acts. We may not get the same luxury of a direct word from Jesus that says, that gives us an evaluation report. You're doing good here, but you really need some work here. But we have his word to compare our lives to, don't we? Jesus sees everything, but not only does he see everything within his church, the good and the bad, but he also sees when the world persecutes his church. And whether it's in this life or in the next life, they will answer to the one whose eyes are flaming fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, likely symbolizing the purity of Jesus. This is reflective of the arms of the angel, the arms and legs of the angel in Daniel chapter 10, who seems to also be a vision of Jesus. The power and the authority must be represented, that Jesus has must be represented by these feet that are burnished bronze, not the feet of clay that Daniel saw in his vision, but feet of strong burnished bronze, refined and pure and ready to trample enemies. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. It's a voice that is authoritative. It is a voice that reminds us that Jesus is the great prophet who Moses was promised. He gives his word not only to his church, but he gives his word to the world. And every single soul will be judged by his word. It's representative as well of Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 2. It speaks about the glory of the Lord. It says, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. John is just doing his best to grab language in order to picture what he sees, but what he's really trying to say is, it was absolutely overwhelming to me. In verse 16, he begins to describe what he's holding. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, representative of the word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword and able to divide and to pierce and his face was like the, full, like the shining sun in full strength. You remember the end of the book of Revelation? Whose light lights up the new heavens and the new earth? The one who is seated on the throne and the lamb. There won't be a sun in that day because right now if you were to go outside and you were to try to use a flashlight, it would be pretty pointless, right? Compared to the bright burning glory of Jesus, the sun is like a pointless flashlight in the middle of broad daylight. John needs to see this vision, and the churches needed to see this vision. Because already, some 60 years after the ascension of Jesus, they were already in deep sin. So we see then a vision to remember. It's one that the church needed to remember then. And the reality is it's one that we must remember now. It's a vision that confronts us when we're tempted to stray, reminds us to stay on track because of who Jesus is. But it's also a vision that comforts us because it reminds us of who Jesus is, our prophet, priest, and king. The one who is, although we can't see him, is among us all the time. Where was he in the lampstands? Not over them, not under them, among them, within them. And he goes on to explain this in our third, uh, our third point of reflection. A comfort to embrace in verses 17 to 20. A comfort to embrace Verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
Of course. Because what else could you do when the glory of the Son of Man is seen? When people see God throughout the Bible, this is what happens. And yet, this is the one who called himself in his gospel, not John, but the one whom Jesus loved. I think John would have probably rightly called himself Jesus' best friend. I don't think they had BFFs then, but he would have been Jesus' best friend. If tattoos were cool, they maybe would have got a sharing tattoo. He's, he's close with Jesus, and now he sees him. And even though they're the best of friends, he's overwhelmed by what he sees, and he falls down as though dead. But notice what happens. But he laid his right hand on me, the same right hand that was holding the stars. He laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. What is the most common at least in Matthew that we read this morning up on the hill, what is the most common way initially the saints were greeted after the resurrection of Jesus? Fear not. Because it was scary to see an angel and it was scary to see a dead man alive again. But Jesus came to give his people his peace. And so Jesus wants John, although John is overwhelmed by the vision, Jesus wants John to understand it's okay. He has Jesus' very own peace. He can get back up because he's a friend of Jesus. And notice Jesus explains why he is to fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. Jesus is saying here, fear not because I'm God. And if God tells you to fear not, you don't have to fear. He says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. You see what he comforts John with? He comforts John with his very own character. Isn't this what you see over and over and over again in the Psalms? The psalmist recites their problem and then they begin to rehearse God's character. And all of a sudden, the clouds lift. And the problem's not gone, but they have peace in the midst of the problem because they know God. Jesus wants John to be comforted. He wants these churches, he wants us to be comforted by his death and resurrection. The reality that if he died and rose, he lives forever. But then also he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the one that can unlock death's grip from you. That's his point. Jesus conquered the grave and now he holds the keys to the grave and now everyone who repents of their sins and believes in the gospel, Jesus sticks that key inside of that, that prison that once held you in death. He turns the key and he opens the door and he pulls you out so that now you are alive forever in him. So then I think that's a good point for me to just stop and ask you, are you alive forever in Jesus? Can you confidently say Jesus has unlocked death's grip from you?
you can confidently say that if you have repented of your sins and believe the good news that even though you're a sinner, Jesus Christ is a savior who loves sinners, who paid for their sins, who rose from the grave for their justification. If you cling to him for your life, if you realize that the only way you could ever be made right with God is not by your own efforts, but by him, then my friend, you've been freed from death. And so even as your body ages, even as this body will one day go into the grave, the reality is you won't die. This body falls asleep. You go to be in the presence of the Lord forever. And one day he's going to give you a body that matches his body, a body that will never get sick, never experience cancer, never get a bad diagnosis, a body that will never cry, a body that will never hunger, A body that Jesus has secured for you because it's him who holds the keys. Verse 19 then, he begins to, he comes back to the message that he has to the churches and he both comforts and confronts the churches. He says, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Likely this refers to what he's seen, the vision of Jesus, and the things that are the letters to the churches and the things that are about to take place after this, Revelation 4 through the end of the book. He wants John to know that he needs to write this down because these churches needed to hear what he had to say. And then in verse 20, he makes it crystal clear that he's in charge of his churches. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he holds the seven stars in his right hand as he stands in the midst of the seven lampstands, which are the churches, and the stars are the angels of the churches. It could be that what Jesus means is that each church has something like maybe what we would call a guardian angel, an angel that is representative as uh, the one who watches out for and oversees that church. That very well could be what he means. I think what he means here is that the seven stars, the seven angels, are the seven spokesmen in each of the churches. The word angel also means messenger. You'll notice that each one of the letters is addressed first to the angel of the church, and yet many of the letters deal with sin that's going on in the church. But if an angel sins, then he becomes a demon, a fallen angel, right? So it seems a little strange for Jesus to direct the confrontation of sin and to tell an angel and a church to repent of their sin. I think what the church is, what the, what the angels represents are something like we would call today the senior pastor or the preaching pastor. The ones who speak who are the main messengers of the church. And so the main messengers of the churches were to read these letters to the churches themselves. Maybe I'm wrong, but either way, 
Jesus holds in his hands the angels of the churches. And he is directly in the midst of the lampstands, the churches themselves. There is nothing that happens to a church that escapes the view of Jesus. There is nothing that happens to a church that is not directly within the sovereign will of Jesus. We can rest assured knowing that the Lord, the the resurrected son of man who is so concerned with these seven churches is still so concerned with every single church that bears his name throughout the world for all time. And that's the comfort that we must embrace. We don't see him. He's ascended back to his father in heaven, but he's here. If he's not here, then he's a liar. Because he said he would always be with us, even to the end of the age. And so it brings us great comfort and great joy to know that Jesus corrects his churches, confronts his churches, comforts his churches, encourages his churches, all because of his promise to build his church. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. A resurrected Savior means a Savior who actually saves. A resurrected Savior means a Savior who actually reigns. A resurrected Savior means a Savior who is always with his people to confront us and to correct us and to comfort us, to be with us forever. This is the vision of the resurrected Son of Man. It's a vision that the church is needed then and it's a vision that the church needs now. And it's a vision that we can grab a hold to and enjoy and embrace and see over and over and over again because the fact of the matter is the Christian life has not gotten a whole lot easier. And so friends, I I hope that seeing this picture of the resurrected Son of Man has been helpful to your soul, and I pray that it motivates your enjoyment of God in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your power and your sovereignty. We thank you for your presence and the comfort that you give to your people. We thank you that when we go astray, you confront us and correct us. We thank you for the enduring power of your word And we ask for your help. It's so humbling to know you. And yet it's the humble whom you look upon. So look upon us, Lord, in our lowly state. So that we would please and honor you now and forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.